Chapter Fourteen, Part Two, Annie Besant by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On June twenty-third, in a review of the secret doctrine in the National Reformer, the following passages occur and show how swiftly some of the main points of the teaching had been grasped. There is a blunder in the statement that of the seven modifications of matter, science knows only four, and till lately knew only three. These four are substates only, subdivisions of the lowest plane. After saying that the nineteenth-century Englishman would be but too likely to be repelled if he only skimmed the book, I went on, With telescope and with microscope, with scalpel and with battery, Western science interrogates nature, adding fact to fact, storing experience after experience, but coming ever to gulfs unfathomable by its plummets, to heights unscalable by its ladders. Wide and masterful in its answers to the how, the why ever eludes it, and causes remain enwrapped in gloom. Eastern science uses as its scientific instrument the penetrating faculties of the mind alone, and regarding the material plane as maya, illusion, seeks in the mental and spiritual planes of being the causes of the material effects. There, too, is the only reality, there the true existence of which the visible universe is but the shadow. It is clear from such investigations some further mental equipment is necessary than that normally afforded by the human body. And here comes the parting of the ways between east and west. For the study of the material universe, our five senses, aided by the instruments invented by science, may suffice. For all we can hear and see, taste and handle, these accustomed servitors, though often blundering, are the best available guides to knowledge. But it lies in the nature of the case that they are useless when the investigation is to be into modes of existence which cannot impress themselves on our nerve ends. For instance, what we know as color is the vibration frequency of etheric waves striking on the retina of the eye, between certain definite limits. 759 trillions of blows from the maximum, 436 trillions from the minimum, these waves give rise in us to the sensation which the brain translates into color. Why the 436 trillion blows at one end of a nerve become red at the other end we do not know. We chronicle the fact but cannot explain it. But our capacity to respond to the vibration cannot limit the vibrational capacity of the ether. To us the higher and lower rates of vibration do not exist, but if our senses of vision were more sensitive we should see where now we are blind. Following this line of thought, we realize that matter may exist in forms unknown to us, in modifications to which our senses are unable to respond. Now steps in the eastern sage and says, That which you say may be is. We have developed and cultivated senses as much superior to yours as your eye is superior to that of the jellyfish. We have evolved mental and spiritual faculties which enable us to investigate on the higher planes of being with as much certainty as you are investigating on the physical plane. There is nothing supernatural in the business, any more than your knowledge is supernatural, though much above that accessible to the fish. We do not speculate on these higher forms of existence. We know them by personal study, just as you know the fauna and flora of your world. The powers we possess are not supernatural. They are latent in every human being, and will be evolved as the race progresses. All that we have done is to evolve them more rapidly than our neighbors, by a procedure as open to you as it was to us. Matter is everywhere, 
but it exists in seven modifications of which you only know four, and until lately only knew three. In those higher forms reside the causes of which you see the effects in the lower, and to know these causes you must develop the capacity to take cognizance of the higher planes. Then followed a brief outline of the cycle of evolution, and I went on, what part does man play in this vast drama of a universe? Needless to say, he is not the only living form in a cosmos, which for the most part is uninhabitable by him. As science has shown living forms everywhere on the material plane, races in each drop of water, life throbbing in every leaf and blade, so the secret doctrine points to living forms on higher planes of existence, each suited to its environment, till all space thrills with life, and nowhere is there death but only change. Amid these myriads are some evolving towards humanity, some evolving away from humanity as we know it, divesting themselves of its grosser parts. For man is regarded as a sevenfold being, four of these parts belonging to the animal body and perishing at or soon after death, while three form his higher self, his true individuality, and these persist and are immortal. These form the ego, and it is this which passes through many incarnations, learning life's lesson as it goes, working out its own redemption within the limits of an inexorable law, sowing seeds of which it ever reaps the harvest, building its own fate with tireless fingers, and finding nowhere in the measureless time and space around it any that can lift for it one weight it has created, one burden it has gathered, unravel for it one tangle it has twisted, close for it one gulf it has digged. Then, after noting the approaches of Western science to Eastern, came the final words. It is of curious interest to note how some of the latest theories seem to catch glimpses of the occult doctrines, as though science were standing on the very threshold of knowledge which shall make all her past seem small. Already her hand is trembling towards the grasp of forces beside which all those now at her command are insignificant. How soon will her grip fasten on them? Let us hope not until social order has been transformed, lest they should only give more to those who have, and leave the wretched still wretcheder by force of contrast. Knowledge used by selfishness widens the gulf that divides man from man and race from race, and we may well shrink from the idea of new powers in nature being yoked to the car of greed. Hence, the wisdom of those masters in whose name Madame Bolvatsky speaks has ever denied the knowledge which is power until love's lesson has been learned, and has given only into the hands of the selfless the control of those natural forces which, misused, would wreck society. This review and the public announcement demanded by honesty that I had joined the Theosophical Society naturally raised somewhat of a storm of criticism and the National Reformer of June 30th contained the following. The review of Madame Blavatsky's book in The Last National Reformer and an announcement in The Star have brought me several letters on the subject of theosophy. I am asked for an explanation as to what theosophy is and as to my own opinion on theosophy. The word theosoph is old and was used among the Neoplatonists. From the dictionary its new meaning appears to be one who claims to have a knowledge of God or of the laws of nature by means of internal illumination. An atheist certainly cannot be a theosophist. A deist might be a theosophist. A monist cannot be a theosophist. Theosophy must at least involve dualism. 
Modern theosophy, according to Madame Blavatsky, as set out in last week's issue, asserts much that I do not believe, and alleges some things that to me are certainly not true. I have not had the opportunity of reading Madame Blavatsky's two volumes, but I have read during the past ten years many publications from the pen of herself, Colonel Alcott, and of other theosophists. They appear to me to have sought to rehabilitate a kind of spiritualism in Eastern phraseology. I think many of their allegations utterly erroneous, and their reasonings wholly unsound. I very deeply regret indeed that my colleague and co-worker has, with somewhat of suddenness, and without any interchange of ideas with myself, adopted as facts matters which seem to me to be as unreal as it is possible for any fiction to be. My regret is greater as I know Mrs. Besant's devotion to any course she believes to be true. I know that she will always be earnest in the advocacy of any views she undertakes to defend, and I look to possible developments of her theosophic views with the very gravest misgiving. The editorial policy of this paper is unchanged, and is directly antagonistic to all forms of theosophy. I would have preferred on this subject to have held my peace, for the public disagreeing with Mrs. Besant on her adoption of socialism has caused pain to both. But on reading her article and taking the public announcement made of her having joined the Theosophical Organization, I owe it to those who look to me for guidance to say this with clearness. Charles Bradlaugh It is not possible for me to state here fully my reasons for joining the Theosophical Society, the three objects of which are to found a universal brotherhood without distinction of race or creed, to forward the study of Aryan literature and philosophy, to investigate unexplained laws of nature and the physical powers latent in man. On matters of religious opinion, the members are absolutely free. The founders of the society deny a personal God, and a somewhat subtle form of pantheism is taught as the theosophic view of the universe, though even this is not forced on members of the society. I have no desire to hide the fact that this form of pantheism appears to me to promise solution of some problems, especially problems in psychology, which atheism leaves untouched. Annie Besant Theosophy, as its students well know, so far from involving dualism, is based on the one, which becomes two on manifestation, just as atheism posits one existence only cognizable in the duality, force, and matter and as philosophic, though not popular, theism teaches one deity whereof are spirit and matter. Mr. Bradlow's temperate disapproval was not copied in its temperance by some other free-thought leaders, and Mr. Foote especially distinguished himself by the bitterness of his attacks. In the midst of the world I was called away to Paris to attend with Herbert Burroughs the great labor congress held there from July 15th to July 20th, and spent a day or two at Fountainebleau with H. P. Blavatsky, who had gone abroad for a few weeks' rest. There I found her translating the wonderful fragments from The Book of the Golden Precepts, now so widely known under the name The Voice of the Silence. She wrote it swiftly without any material copy before her, and in the evening made me read it aloud to see if the English was decent. Herbert Burroughs was there and Mrs. Candler, a staunch American theosophist, and we sat round H.P.B. while I read. The translation was in perfect and beautiful English, flowing and musical. Only a word or two could we find to alter, and she looked at us like a startled child, wondering at our praises, praises that anyone with the literary sense would endorse if they read that exquisite prose poem. A little earlier in the same day I had asked her as to the agencies at work in producing the taps so constantly heard at spiritualistic seances. 
"'You don't use spirits to produce taps,' she said. "'See here.' She put her hand over my head, not touching it, and I heard and felt slight taps at the bone of my skull, each sending a little electric thrill down the spine. Then she carefully explained how such taps were producible at any point desired by the operator, and how interplay of the currents to which they were due might be caused otherwise than by conscious human volition. It was in this fashion that she would illustrate her verbal teachings, proving by experiment the statements made as to the existence of subtle forces controllable by the trained mind. The phenomena all belonged to the scientific side of her teaching, and she never committed the folly of claiming authority for her philosophic doctrines on the ground that she was a wonder-worker. And constantly she would remind us that there was no such thing as miracle, that all the phenomena she had produced were worked by virtue of a knowledge of nature deeper than that of average people, and by the force of a well-trained mind and will. Some of them were what she would describe as psychological tricks, the creation of images by force of imagination, and impressing them on others as a collective hallucination. Others, such as the moving of solid articles, either by an astral hand projected to draw them towards her, or by using an elemental, others by reading in the astral light, and so on. But the proof of the reality of her mission from those whom she spoke of as masters lay not in these comparatively trivial physical and mental phenomena, but in the splendor of her heroic endurance, the depth of her knowledge, the selflessness of her character, the lofty spirituality of her teaching, the untiring passion of her devotion, the incessant ardor of her work for the enlightening of men. It was these, and not her phenomena, that won for her our faith and confidence, we who lived beside her, knowing her daily life, and we gratefully accepted her teaching not because she claimed any authority, but because it woke in us powers, the possibility of which in ourselves we had not dreamed of, energies of the soul that demonstrated their own existence. Returning to London from Paris, it became necessary to make a very clear and definite presentment of my change of views, and in the Reformer of August 4th I find the following. Many statements are being made just now about me and my beliefs, some of which are absurdly and some of which are maliciously untrue. I must ask my friends not to give credence to them. It would not be fair to my friend Mr. Bradlow to ask him to open the columns of this journal to an exposition of theosophy from my pen, and so bring about a long controversy on a subject which would not interest the majority of the readers of the National Reformer. This being so, I cannot here answer the attacks made on me. I feel, however, that the party with which I have worked for so long has a right to demand of me some explanation of the step I have taken, and I am therefore preparing a pamphlet dealing fully with the question. Further, I have arranged with Mr. R. O. Smith to take as subject of the lectures to be delivered by me at the Hall of Science on August 4th and 11th why I became a theosophist. Meanwhile, I think that my years of service in the ranks of the Free Thought Party give me the right to ask that I should not be condemned unheard, and I even venture to suggest, in view of the praises bestowed on me by freethinkers in the past, that it is possible that there may be something to be said, from the intellectual standpoint, in favor of theosophy. The caricatures of it which have appeared from some freethinkers' pens represent it about as accurately as the Christian evidence caricatures of atheism represent that dignified philosophy of life and remembering how much they are themselves misrepresented, I ask them to wait before they judge. The lectures were delivered, and were condensed into a pamphlet bearing the same title, which has had a very great circulation. It closed as follows. There remains a great stumbling-block in the minds of many free thinkers, which is certain to prejudice them against theosophy, 
and which offers to opponents a cheap subject for sarcasm, the assertion that there exist other living beings than the men and animals found on our own globe. It may be well for people who at once turn away when such an assertion is made to stop and ask themselves whether they really and seriously believe that throughout this mighty universe, in which our little planet is but as a tiny speck of sand in the Sahara, this one planet only is inhabited by living things? Is all the universe dumb save for our voices, eyeless save for our vision, dead save for our life? Such a preposterous belief was well enough in the days when Christianity regarded our world as the center of the universe, the human race as the one for which the Creator had deigned to die. But now that we are placed in our proper position, one among countless myriads of worlds, what ground is there for the preposterous conceit which arrogates as ours all sentient existence? Earth, air, water, all are teeming with living beings suited to their environment. Our globe is overflowing with life. But the moment we pass in thought beyond our atmosphere, everything is to be changed. Neither reason nor analogy support such a supposition. It was one of Bruno's crimes that he dared to teach that other worlds than ours were inhabited but he was wiser than the monks who burned him. All the theosophists aver is that each phase of matter has living beings suited to it, and that all the universe is pulsing with life. Superstition, shrieked the bigoted. It is no more superstitious than the belief in bacteria, or in any other living thing invisible to the ordinary human eye. Spirit is a misleading word, for historically it connotes immateriality and a supernatural kind of existence and the theosophist believes neither in the one nor the other. With him all living beings act in and through a material basis, and matter and spirit are not found dissociated. But he alleges that matter exists in states other than those at present known to science. To deny this is to be about as sensible as was the Hindu prince who denied the existence of ice, because water, in his experience, never became solid. Refusal to believe until proof is given is a rational position, Denial of all outside our own limited experience is absurd. One last word to my secularist friends. If you say to me, leave our ranks, I will leave them. I force myself on no party, and the moment I feel myself unwelcome, I will go. It has cost me pain enough and to spare to admit that the materialism from which I hoped all has failed me, and by such admission to bring on myself the disapproval of some of my nearest friends. But here, as at other times in my life, I dare not purchase peace with a lie. An imperious necessity forces me to speak the truth, as I see it, whether the speech please or displease, whether it bring praise or blame. That one loyalty to truth I must keep stainless, whatever friendships fail me or human ties be broken. She may lead me into the wilderness, yet I must follow her. She may strip me of all love, yet I must pursue her. Though she slay me, yet will I trust in her. And I ask no other epitaph on my tomb, but she tried to follow truth. Meanwhile, with this new controversy on my hands, the school board work went on, rendered possible, I ought to say, by the generous assistance of friends unknown to me, who sent me a hundred fifty pounds a year during the last year and a half. So also went on the vigorous socialist work, and the continual championship of struggling labor movements, prominent here being the organization of the South London fur-pullers into a union, and the aiding of the movement for shortening the hours of tram and bus men, 
the meetings for which had to be held after midnight. The feeding and clothing of children also occupied much time and attention, for the little ones in my district were, thousands of them, desperately poor. My studies I pursued as best I could, reading in railway carriages, tram-cars, omnibuses, and stealing hours for listening to H.P.B. by shortening the nights. In October Mr. Bradlow's shaken strength received its death-blow, though he was to live yet another fifteen months. He collapsed suddenly under a most severe attack of congestion, and lay in imminent peril, devotedly nursed by his only remaining child, Mrs. Bonner, his elder daughter having died the preceding autumn. Slowly he struggled back to life, after four weeks in bed, and ordered by his physician to take rest and, if possible, a sea voyage, he sailed for India on November 28th to attend the National Congress, where he was enthusiastically acclaimed as Member for India. In November I argued a libel suit, brought by me against the Reverend Mr. Hoskins, vicar of Stepney, who had selected some vile passages from a book which was not mine and had circulated them as representing my views during the school board election of 1888. I had against me the Solicitor General, Sir Edward Clark, at the bar, and Baron Huddleston on the bench. Both counsel and judge did their best to browbeat me and to use the coarsest language, endeavouring to prove that by advocating the limitation of the family I had condemned chastity as a crime. Five hours of brutal cross-examination left my denial of such teachings unshaken, and even the pleadings of the judge for the clergyman, defending his parishioners against an unbeliever and his laying down as law that the statement was privileged, did not avail to win a verdict. The jury disagreed, not, as one of them told me afterward, on the question of the libel, but on some of the feeling that a clergyman ought not to be molted in damages for his overzeal in defense of his faith against the ravening wolf of unbelief, while others, regarding the libel as a very cruel one, would not agree to a verdict that did not carry substantial damages. I did not carry the case to a new trial, feeling that it was not worth while to waste time over it further, my innocence of the charge itself having been fully proved. Busily the months rolled on, and early in the year 1890 H. P. Blavatsky had given to her one thousand pounds to use in her discretion for human service, and if she thought well, in the service of women. After a good deal of discussion she fixed on the establishment of a club in East London for working girls, and with her approval Miss Laura Cooper and I hunted for a suitable place. Finally we fixed on a very large and old house, 193 Bow Road, and some months went in its complete renovation and building of a hall attached to it. On August 15th it was opened by Madame Blavatsky and dedicated by her to the brightening of the lot of hard-working and underpaid girls. It has nobly fulfilled its mission for the last three years. Very tender was H.P.B.'s heart to human suffering, especially to that of women and children. She was very poor toward the end of her earthly life, having spent all on her mission, and refusing to take time from her theosophical work to write for the Russian papers which were ready to pay highly for her pen. But her slender purse was swiftly emptied when any human pain that money could relieve came in her way. One day I wrote a letter to a comrade that was shown to her, about some little children to whom I had carried a quantity of country flowers, and I had spoken of their faces pinched with want. The following characteristic note came to me. My dearest friend, I have just read your letter to blank, and my heart is sick for the poor little ones. Look here, I have but thirty shillings of my own money of which I can dispose, for as you know I am a pauper and proud of it, but I want you to take them and not say a word. 
This may buy thirty dinners for thirty poor little starving wretches, and I may feel happier for thirty minutes at the thought. Now don't say a word and do it. Take them to those unfortunate babies who loved your flowers and felt happy. Forgive your old uncouth friend, useless in this world. Ever yours, H.P.B. It was this tenderness of hers that led us, after she had gone, to found the H.P.B. home for little children, and one day we hoped to fulfill her expressed desire that a large but homelike refuge for outcast children should be opened under the auspices of the Theosophical Society. The lease of 17 Lansdowne Road expiring in the early summer of 1890, it was decided that 19 Avenue Road should be turned into the headquarters of the Theosophical Society in Europe. A hall was built for the meetings of the Blavatsky Lodge, the lodge founded by her, and various alterations made. In July her staff of workers was united under one roof. Thither came Archibald and Bertram Keatley, who had devoted themselves to her service years before, and the Countess Wachtmeister, who had thrown aside all the luxuries of wealth and of high social rank to give all to the cause she served and the friend she loved with deep and faithful loyalty and George Meade, her secretary and earnest disciple, a man of strong brain and strong character, a fine scholar and untiring worker. Thither, too, Claude Wright, most lovable of Irishmen, with keen insight underlying a bright and sunny nature, careless on the surface. And Walter Old, dreamy and sensitive, a born psychic, and like many such, easily swayed by those around him. Emily Kislingbury, also, a studious and earnest woman, Isabel Cooper Oakley, intuitional and studious, a rare combination, and a most devoted pupil in occult studies. James Prize, an American, than whom none is more devoted, bringing practical knowledge to the help of the work, and making possible the large development of a printing department. These, with myself, were at first the resident staff, Miss Cooper and Herbert Burroughs, who were also identified with the work, being prevented by other obligations from living always as part of the household. The rules of the house were, and are, very simple, but H.P.B. insisted on great regularity of life. We breakfasted at 8 a.m., worked till lunch at 1, then again till dinner at 7. After dinner the outer work for the society was put aside, and we gathered in H.P.B.'s room where we would sit talking over plans, receiving instructions, listening to her explanation of knotty points. By 12 midnight all the lights had to be extinguished. My public work took me away for many hours, unfortunately for myself, but such was the regular run of our busy lives. She herself wrote incessantly. Always suffering, but of indomitable will, she drove her body through its tasks, merciless to its weaknesses and its pains. Her pupils she treated very variously, adapting herself with nicest accuracy to their differing natures. As a teacher she was marvelously patient, explaining a thing over and over again in different fashions, until sometimes after prolonged failure she would throw herself back in her chair. My God, the easy mon dieu of the foreigner, am I a fool that you can't understand? Here, so-and-so, to someone on whose countenance a faint gleam of comprehension was discernible, tell these flapdoodles of the ages what I mean. With vanity, conceit, Pretense of knowledge, she was merciless if the pupil were a promising one. Keen shafts of irony would pierce the sham. With some she would get very angry, lashing them out of their lethargy with fiery scorn. And in truth she made herself a mere instrument for the training of her pupils, careless what they or anyone else thought of her, 
providing that the resulting benefit to them was secured. And we who lived around her, who in closest intimacy watched her day after day, we bear witness to the unselfish beauty of her life, the nobility of her character, and we lay at her feet our most reverent gratitude for knowledge gained, lives purified, strength developed. O noble and heroic soul, whom the outside purblind world misjudges, but whom your pupils partly saw, never through lives and deaths shall we repay the debt of gratitude we owe to you. And thus I came through storm to peace, not to the peace of an untroubled sea of outer life, which no strong soul can crave, but to an inner peace that outer troubles may not avail to ruffle, a peace which belongs to the eternal, not to the transitory, to the depths, not to the shallows of life. It carried me scatheless through the terrible spring of 1891, when death struck down Charles Bradlaugh in the plenitude of his usefulness, and unlocked the gateway into rest for H. P. Blavatsky. Through anxieties and responsibilities heavy and numerous it has borne me. Every strain makes it stronger. Every trial makes it serener. Every assault leaves it more radiant. Quiet confidence has taken the place of doubt. A strong security the place of anxious dread. In life, through death, to life, I am but the servant of the great brotherhood, and those on whose heads but for a moment the touch of the Master has rested in blessing can never again look upon the world save through eyes made luminous with the radiance of the eternal peace. Peace to all beings. End of chapter 14 End of Annie Besant by Annie Besant